National Archives podcast series, Sources for First World War Army Ancestry. So, uh, here I am to talk to you about Sources for First World War Army Ancestry at the National Archives. And um, by way of uh, introduction, you know, if you, were, uh, if you were a newcomer to this subject, um, your, your first thoughts might well be that it should be an easy task to find records of a relative who's, who served in the army during the First World War. Um, because it was such a cataclysmic event uh, involving millions of army personnel, you may well think that individuals should be well documented. But um, if you embark upon research, you'll uh, soon come up against certain problems. And um, the major stumbling block is that so many service records were destroyed by bombing during the Second World War. But there remain, of course, some sources to investigate. And if you're willing to turn over every stone, uh, then thorough searching can prove fruitful. So in this talk, I'm intending to cover sources for the other ranks and officers uh, using two case studies to illustrate the sort of material you can find here at the National Archives. So looking first at the service records for other ranks. Now, um, these records, they were actually held in the time of the Second World War. They were held in a place called Arnside Street, which was in Bermondsey, I think in a, a warehouse. But very sadly indeed, um, that warehouse was bombed in September 1940. And around about 65% of the service records for other ranks were destroyed in that bombing. Now, the surviving records, the, rec the records that were actually rescued from the Blitz fire, are known as the burnt documents. <laughs> and uh, they're in the series WO363. That's how we've termed them. Now, most of these uh, surviving records were, of course, badly affected by fire and water damage, but this series, WO363, covers the, tends to cover the war survivors and the war dead. Now, um, in the post-war period, um, to try and remedy the worst effects of the damage, and because the records were also needed for administrative purposes, um, an attempt was made to compile a second collection from records held by other government departments. And the majority of these records came from the Ministry of Pensions. They primarily concern men who were discharged from the army on account of sickness or wounds suffered between 1914 and 1920 and who sought a pension. Now, at the moment, there is no name index to these records, and I think that's a fairly crucial point. At the moment, they're really on in alphabetical, approximate alphabetical order on reels of microfilm. And uh, it can be quite a slog to find the person that you're trying to find. The, the records cover men who were serving um, and who were discharged or died in service between 1914 and 1920. Both these series are arranged by surnames, as I've said, and in fact there are several alphabetical sequences. I think another uh, point about all of this is that there are 
variations because actually you, you can sometimes chance upon men who had no First World War connection. And uh, you can also sometimes get soldiers whose service came to a natural conclusion during 1914 to 1920. In other words, you know, they'd served their term of service and they'd retired. Uh, and you can also sometimes get soldiers who saw service in the 19th century. You know, there, there are these um, variations, and I think you know sometimes this is down to war office clerks and happen to, happening to file papers in this particular sequence, and there they've remained. Anyway, the uh, the good news is that there's a, a project which is now well underway to digitise and index the records. This project is being carried out by www.ancestry.com. Um, and the first batch of content, which covers surnames A to B for the series WO364, is now available on the Ancestry website. Now, this is obviously a huge undertaking. Um, there are something like 27 million images to um, put online. Um, but it's expected that this will be completed in 2008. And it is worth keeping an eye on their website because I'm, I'm sure that there will be more releases uh, possibly actually quite soon. Now, there were some records which were unaffected by the bombing. Um, two particular categories, the Household Cavalry Service records, and we've got the originals of those in the series WO400. And the other records which were unaffected were the records of the various guards regiments, such as the uh, Irish Guards and the Scots Guards, etc. Now, those records are held at the Guards Museum, uh, and in case any of you are interested, that's at uh, Wellington Barracks, Birdcage Walk, London, SW1. I'll just give you that, I think. Wellington Barracks, Birdcage Walk, London, SW1, E6HQ if you need the whole address but if you ever do write to them you need to make sure that you address it correctly um, so for example you would address it to the curator regimental HQ Irish Guards Wellington Barracks they, they need to have it sort of correctly addressed in that kind of way to make sure it gets channeled through to the right regiment now um, if we look at my first case study and you can always refer to the handouts here as well if you wish the first case study is Arthur James Mitchell and he was of the 15th service battalion Royal Scots and his service record survives in the series WO364 and here we're looking at part of his attestation form uh, which he signed on enlistment and it's, um, it's significant, I think, that uh, right at the top of the form, it says short service and then for the duration of the war. You know, I think that's just quite interesting in its own right. But as you can see, the form includes the title of his regiment and uh, the number of his battalion. And then over in the top left-hand corner is his regimental number. Um, and it also gives his uh, full name, his home address, 1 River Street, Montrose, in Scotland, his age, 21 years and 30 days, and his trade, he's an apprentice civil engineer. Now, 
here we see the wording of the oath that he took um, on, on his attestation. I will be faithful and bear true allegiance to his majesty, King George V. And we can see the date and place of his attestation, 21st of December 1914 at Edinburgh. Arthur Mitchell was a volunteer because uh, conscription was not brought in until 1960. Now, the records can often give physical descriptions, and here we see a description for Arthur Mitchell. Um, we learn that he had a, a mole on his left arm and forearm and had moles on his face, and we also learn that his father was John Robert Mitchell. All useful information. Moving on, we see now here the Statement of Services table. Now this is a potentially useful section because this was often updated to give details of postings and promotions. Arthur Mitchell's entries are fairly brief, but this is probably because his service as part of the expeditionary force in France was only six months. Um, this is the form entitled Proceedings on Discharge, which provides some additional details. Um, he was discharged on the 21st of September 1916 at Hamilton. And there's some further physical details. His height is recorded, 5 foot 9 inches. He had brown eyes and black hair. Now, Arthur James Mitchell was discharged in consequence of being no longer physically fit for war service under, as it says here, paragraph 392, number 16, of the King's Regulations. Now, the King's Regulations were the Army's standing orders. These were the rules, really, which governed a soldier's life in the Army. And all of this has been done on the authority of the Metropolitan Hospital, which was presumably in the Hamilton area. His military character is described as good, and there's a very brief summary of his character in rather you know, typically clipped army um, speak, a sober, steady man. Now, the report of the medical board is what we're looking at here, and this gives more detail on the cause of his discharge. No longer physically fit, GSWs in both forearms. And, you know, as many of you probably guess, a GSW stands for gunshot wound. Now, the report tells us that the wounds were sustained in action on the 1st of July 1916, the first day of the Somme campaign. I won't go into all the details, it's not particularly pleasant, but you know, just to paraphrase this, he's in good general health and the right forearm wound is quite healed, but movements of the wrist are almost nil and the hand is wasted. His left forearm is wasted and movements are impaired. So he has suffered a permanent disability. Now, this page now records the dates of medical board reports on Arthur Mitchell during 1917 and 1918. Now, I can't necessarily throw light on all of the annotations here, because actually a common problem in the public records is clerical references that were made at the time, uh, the meaning of which are now unclear, because you know the records rarely come to us with any kind of um, manual of explanations, really. But um, you can decipher some of them. Uh, in the column-headed board's decision on the, on the right, um, there are references to his rate of disability pension. For example, 
um, increase sea award to 22 shillings from the 4th of the 4th, 1917. And there's an award of a gratuity down at the bottom right there, a gratuity of £55 is recorded in December 1918. So we can see that the service record has provided a considerable amount of information about Arthur James Mitchell, both in terms of personal details and his military service. On a general note, the survival rate of the forms is very patchy, and therefore you get different combinations of an individual in each record. And an entry can range from, well, zero, <laughs> to one or two pages on an individual, to sometimes over 60 pages on an individual. And so if you're successful in your search, you know, it's, you can really uh, strike gold. And I've sometimes been on duty in the microfilm reading room when people have, you know, found their ancestor and they've found a huge number of pages on them and they've been absolutely thrilled and delighted. Um, it, of course, it just does depend on the luck factor. Now we're moving on to um, campaign medals and uh, in particular the index to them. Now, campaign medals are medals awarded to individuals who served in the First World War and who met the qualifications laid down for each campaign medal. In general, those who saw service overseas in a theatre of war would normally be awarded a campaign medal. And the Medal Rolls Index, known as the Medal Index Cards, was created by the Army Medal Office towards the end of the First World War. And it's these medal index cards that can be accessed online via our website, via documents online. The campaign medal rolls cover awards of the following, the British War Medal, the Victory Medal, the 1914 Star, the 1914 to 15 Star, the Territorial Force War Medal, and also the Silver War Badge which was normally awarded to those, for, for, for those who were wounded. Now this is the medal index card entry for Arthur Mitchell and you see the sort of brief details recorded. Name, now sometimes actually with the forenames you may only get initials and that's something to be wary of actually when you're searching. Um, there's the regiment um, which is under the, the heading core and then rank regimental number which changed if the uh, soldier went into a different regiment and of course it's not uncommon for a soldier to serve in more than one regiment and then you get the medals to which the individual was entitled to. Now in this case Arthur Mitchell was entitled to the Victory Medal and the British War Medal um, he wasn't entitled to the 14 star or the 14 to 15 star because he hadn't been serving in a theatre of war which enabled you to qualify for those particular medals, which are, there are particular qualifying dates for those medals. Note also that there are columns for um, theatre of war first served in and also uh, date of entry therein. Now in a number of cases, such as this one, <laughs> they're not filled in. Um, but sometimes they are, and sometimes um, you do get a, a little sort of um, alphanumeric type code for theatre of war, like um, 1A, which stands, which stands for France and Belgium. We, we've got a listing of these um, codes, and I think they're also um, they're listed on the uh, very informative Documents Online webpage as well. Um, the date of entry into the theatre of war I suppose it's self-explanatory. You know, it, it, it's really the, 
the date that the soldier landed in France or whichever other country he went to. Now, I mean, you might well be puzzled by the rather strange uh, code references in that column which is headed roll there, these sort of D stroke 101 B9 type references. Well, these can be converted to give you the reference of the metal roll itself. Remember, what we're looking at here is the index to the metal roll. Now, this metal roll itself is usually produced in, well, that would be produced in original document form. Now, there's a way of converting those references using keys which are available in the microfilm reading room here, and, of course, our staff would be happy to show you how to do that. Here's the uh, metal roll entry itself in the series WO329, which includes Arthur Mitchell's entry, and its main purpose is, it, is that it's the final proof of entitlement. The medals were issued in respect of the unit with which the person last served. Previous units served with are also given. There is a column for that. One point, because we're often asked this sort of question. Incidentally, the MOD Medal Office no longer issues replacement medals for, for medals that were uh, issued before 1920. So, you know, if it is a case that um, the medal has got mislaid, then I'm afraid all you can really do now is go to a medals dealer, you know, um, and, uh, you know, maybe sometimes you can get duplicates made up or facsimiles. Now, in most cases, the, the medal roll itself will not give you very much more than the microfiche index. But it is, um, you see, I, I, I believe very much in this approach of turning over every stone. And quite often, it will tell you which battalion the person was in, you see. And that, may, that might be something you don't, you don't know. And that is a very useful thing to know, because then you might be able to locate a battalion war diary. And so that brings me on to my next source, which is the war diaries. Now, with war diaries, although, um, although they rarely mention individual soldiers, they are, one of, they are still one of the most important sources to be found here if you're trying to um, trace your ancestors' career in the, in the army during the First World War. Now, a war diary is really a day-by-day -day account of a unit's activity um, whether it's on the front line or behind the trenches. And the war diaries range from those compiled by general headquarters right down to battalion level. A, now, a battalion um, usually contained up to about a 1,000 officers and men. In some cases, you do get war diaries for smaller specialist units, such as military hospitals. War diaries are arranged by operational theatre and they're arranged in hierarchical <laughs> order in, in sort of the reflecting really the organisation of the army. They're arranged by the army's orders of battle and for certain categories of unit they can be a bit difficult to locate sometimes but keyword searches on our catalogue you know can help and um, again staff can give you tips about how the, the best way to search. War diaries. Now, um, with war diaries, details vary because um, you know, the amount of information recorded, well, it is variable because, as you can imagine, they were sometimes recorded in great haste and under extreme pressure. The amount, uh, the amount of detail recorded could also depend on the personality of the officer who kept the diary. I do think this is often an important factor. 
Sometimes our holdings may be duplicates or triplicates of the original, and uh, regimental museums may also hold copies. Although war diaries rarely mention individual soldiers, they can provide useful background information on the activities of the unit as a whole, contextual information, which will help you to flesh out what may have happened to your ancestor. Now, as we've seen, Arthur Mitchell was involved uh, in the Somme offensive, and he was wounded on the very first day of that offensive, the 1st of July 1916. Now, the war diary for his particular battalion, the 15th Battalion of the Royal Scots, is um, written in pencil. It's very faint, and some words are difficult to read. So I haven't um, included it in my illustrations, but I thought you might be interested to hear a sort of selected extract from it. The tragedy of the events on the first day of the Somme certainly comes across. So referring to the 15th Battalion, Royal Scots, on the 1st of July, it took part in the Atel, and the war diary records that the first and second waves of men had formed up in no man's land just before zero hour, 7.30 a.m., and it states, the men left with great heart and in grand form, but there were heavy casualties amongst the third and fourth waves when leaving the frontline parapet, mostly from machine guns. The War Diary talks of, quote, considerable loss, first to the 15th Royal Scots and later to the 10th Lincolns and the 11th Suffolks, as machine guns could afford to play on each of them at separate times. It is stated that only the extreme right of the 15th Royal Scots made their objective, namely Peak Trench. Huge losses of men occurred during this action. The War Diary states... The 15th Royal Scots casualties amount to 18 officers and 610 other ranks, so far as we can judge at the moment. So we can see that the War Diary does help to build up a picture of the circumstances in which Arthur Mitchell was wounded. Now, as well as records for other ranks, the bombing in 1940 also destroyed many forms for army officers. Now, we hold two sets of, of service records for officers. Actually, we call them service records, but really it would be more accurate to call them correspondence files. Um, because really, these files contain correspondence relating to an officer and his service, um, rather than actually a record of service. Sometimes they do include attestation papers. For those who died, the file often includes a list of personal effects and details of probate arrangements. Now, the main body in many ways is the series WO339, which you can search in our online catalogue using surname and initials, and that may well give you a direct reference. It depends partly, I think, on the popularity of the surname, because I'm afraid all you do get is the initial and the surname, so in some cases you may have to order up you know, more than one file to find whether you really have got clinched the person you're looking for. These records are actually arranged by something called the long number. Each officer had a long number, but it's not quite the same thing as a service number, as in the case of other ranks. If a catalogue search by name fails, then you might have to investigate further using the alphabetical index on microfilm in the series WO338. 
It should be noted that um, these files were extensively weeded by war office clerks in the 1930s. Even so, you know, I, uh, this, is, this is a real generalisation, but you know, I think you do often stand a better chance of finding an officer's service record than you would for uh, other ranks. Now, this, the other series um, is WO374, and this covers the following categories. Um, officers of the Territorial Army, some officers who came out of retirement, civilian specialists who were granted commissions, Again, it's well, arranged in alphabetical order. You can search it on the online catalogue using surname and initial. Now, this is the second case study. Um, it's the rather um, unusually named uh, Lucas Tooth family, but um, they, uh, they, there were a number of um, illustrious uh, military careers um, involved with them. Now, Robert Lucas Tooth was a brewer, and a successful businessman who was born in Australia. And in 1889, he brought his family to England. And in 1909, he bought the Holm Lacey estate near Hereford. And very splendid it looks too. Incidentally, it's now a hotel. Now, at the outbreak of the First World War, Robert Lucas Tooth helped to set up the Australian Voluntary Hospital at the front. Now, Robert and his, his wife, Sarah, had three sons, Selwyn, Douglas, and Leonard, and all of them served during the, during the First World War. Now, this is an entry from a publication called The Distinguished Service Order, 1886 to 1923, by Sir Omore Cray and E.M. Humphreys. And this includes a photograph of Douglas, uh, Captain Douglas, and um, he was created a companion of the Distinguished Service Order for an action at Ondrignes in Belgium on the 24th of August 1914. It's a good informative entry, that. Now, this is an extract showing the war diary relating to the action at Ondrignes. It's sort of um, mentioned towards the bottom of the page. Um, it's fairly typical of a war diary entry. It's written in pencil. It's written in a concise and economical manner. But the war diary does have some particularly interesting appendices to it, um, which is now what we're looking at. And this is a report written by R.H. Grace. He was the brigade major of the 2nd Cavalry Brigade. And Captain Lucas Tooth is mentioned at the bottom of the page we go on. The report states that on the August the 24th, 1914, the Germans had launched a strong counterattack. The brigade major ordered Lieutenant Colonel Campbell, commanding the 9th Lancers, to check the hostile advance. Just then I saw the three squadrons of the 9th Lancers charge the German infantry. The charge was well led and gallantly executed by all squadrons. The actual effect was marred by a wire fence between the squadrons and the enemy. The moral effect was complete. The enemy did not advance beyond the wire for four hours and gave time for the 6th Division to retire in good order. Here, the Brigade Major writes, 
I especially wish to commend the true cavalry spirit of the Ninth Lancers in daring to charge unbroken infantry in order to save neighbouring troops. I think this is a fascinating entry as it indicates that in the early days of the war there was still some scope for some movement and cavalry charges before the stalemate situation of static trench lines developed. Even then, there is an ominous reference to wire causing an obstacle. I'm not totally sure whether that wire was there because it just happened to be an obstacle that hadn't been cleared or whether it was there deliberately. That's not totally clear to me. But, um, you know, it is, as I say, there, there, there is an interesting entry which shows the sort of heroism of people like du Captain Douglas. Even then, they were sort of fighting rearguard action, really, against the German forces. And the fact that casualties among the officers soon began to mount is reinforced by the fact that Captain Douglas was killed by shrapnel shortly after this action near Vendray on the 13th of September 1914. He'd had a distinguished career in the army, including service in the Boer War. Now, Douglas's brother, Selwyn, was also a captain, and he joined the Lancashire Fusiliers. But very sadly, Selwyn was also killed in action during the very next month, on the 20th of October 1914. And this is a copy of, the of a telegraph from the War Office to Mrs. Lucas Tooth, informing her of her husband's death. It reads, Deeply regret to inform you that Captain S. Lucas Tooth, Lancashire Fusiliers, was killed in action 20th of October. Lord Kitchener expresses his sympathy. It is very to the point, I suppose. And here we've got a note from the military secretary to Mrs. Lucas Tooth, giving the location of Selwyn's grave, which was situated uh, in the graveyard near Le Touquet Station. Addressed to Mrs. Lucas Tooth at Holm Lacey. Now, this is a letter from the third brother, Leonard, and he's thanking the military secretary for his letter stating where my late brother is buried and I trust that his grave is marked in some way to enable it to be identified after the war. But the tragic loss of life was further compounded when Major Leonard himself was also killed on the 12th of July 1918. And this is the entry of the Commonwealth War Graves Commission website for Major Leonard Archibald Leonard Lucas Tooth of the Honourable Artillery Company. As many of you will know, the, um, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission site is a really good, web, um, is a really good resource. Their um, Debt of Honour register is used, of course, by many people tracing army ancestry in this period. And another um, really good website to be aware of is um, British War Graves, uh, www.britishwargraves.org.uk. Um, as I had the privilege to um, give uh, this lecture to, to that group, and um, the work that they do is really, really good. Um, it's all done by volunteers, and they're, um, they're taking pictures of all known um, headstones, memorials, etc., war graves. They're taking photographs of them and compiling um, a massive database of those, which is obviously, you know, incredibly worthwhile work. Now, in terms of further reading, um, 
Uh, I would recommend actually this best-selling guide by um, William Spencer, colleague of mine, and um, you know he's um, our senior military specialist. This is uh, the standard reference work in many ways on the subject. Army service records of the First World War. Also, I'm a big fan of these books. These uh, superb books by Norman Holding, World War One Army Ancestry, and more sources. World War One Army Ancestry, and also um, excellent book by uh, Ian Swinnerton, identifying your World War One soldier from badges and photographs, uh, because of course that's a very common line of inquiry. And these were these are published by the Federation of Family History Societies. So, in conclusion, as I've mentioned, um, one can encounter certain obstacles in searching for. Uh, an army ancestor, First World War, and of course the, the chief problem is so many records were destroyed during the Second World War. But if you're lucky and a service record survives, then you can get a, you know, a, a large amount of information sometimes on an individual. Your opportunities to consult the surviving records are set to increase dramatically with the placing of the surviving records online. If a service record doesn't survive for your ancestor, remember you can always turn to other sources such as the medal rolls and the war diaries, which can prove invaluable. And um, also the sort of sources that you know Norman Holding and others mention in, the, in their books as well. I'd just like to end by reiterating the importance of turning over every stone. Persistence can pay off and thorough searching can prove fruitful. Thank you. This event was recorded live on June the 19th, 2007 at the National Archives at Kew. It was presented by Mark Dunton. This podcast is copyright the National Archives, all rights reserved.